Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. God, we are excited to be in your presence, and we do pray that you would help us to have open hearts, open ears, that we would be ready to receive, ready to grow. We want to know your word and be equipped by it, and we pray that tonight you would speak to us through it. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So, we've said it before, we'll probably say it every week that we're in this book, but One of the critical things to understanding the book of Revelation is to understand that it is, as it says in chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which is not the book of Revelations, it's the book of Revelation. And if you understand that in context, then the book becomes vastly simpler in its scope. Because all of a sudden it's not about, well, who's the Antichrist, and what does the number 666 mean, and who are the two messengers, and what are all these details, and how do we fit them all together? It's about what is, this, what is this book telling us, and the book is telling us that Jesus Christ is going to reveal himself. And if we understand that as, as the focal point of the entire book, then everything else tends to either fall in place or become insignificant in, in the appropriate way. And so we start off by understanding that. We understand next that when we look at prophecy, the most consistent way to read prophecy is to read it as literally as possible. Because we're informed in Scripture of the two comings of Jesus Christ. The first one has already happened, and it was significant enough that we switched from counting B.C., before Christ, to A.D., in the year of our Lord. Or if you want to be super hip and woke, you can call it B.C.E. and C.E., but the only thing that made it a common era was the fact that Christ came. And so it's, he still wins either way. But God came the first time and switched the world from B.C. to A.D., and there's a second time coming when he will make a new heaven and a new earth. But as we look at the prophecies about his first coming, they were fulfilled in the vast majority of the time in a very literal sense. And so understanding that the Lord is consistent and that he's faithful, we think that most likely the best way to interpret prophecy is to see unfulfilled prophecies as being literal wherever possible. And when we come to a spot where we say, you know, I don't know, well, maybe the Lord has a plan that we don't understand. Now, there's a couple spots, we'll get into it next week in particular, where John does give us a bit of a directive that this is, uh, this is a symbol, and I'm seeing something that is representative, okay? And he'll talk about, I saw a sign in heaven, and something was a little bit, you know, it was like this, and he's given a little more room to say, okay, there's some symbolism here, but as we read prophecy, we want to read it as literally as possible. And then lastly, we have the outline of the book. We've talked about this before, but Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, Jesus is speaking, and he says, write the things which you've seen, that's chapter 1, the things which are, that's chapters 2 and 3, or the, the church age, that's where we're living right now. Uh, in the time when the Holy Spirit is primarily moving through the work of the church on the earth, and then the things which will take place after this. And that's chapters 4 through the end of the book. And that specifically uh, is covering what's known as the Great Tribulation, and then what's known as the Millennial Kingdom, and then what will be known as the New Heavens and the New Earth. And so right now, where we find ourselves tonight, as we're just kind of, you know, to bring us up to speed before we just dive in, and you say, where the heck are we? or chapter 10, but really we're in the middle of what's known as the Great Tribulation. And it's in the process of the Lord taking the earth back out of the hands of Satan. And, you know, we saw in chapters 4 and 5 that Jesus is the only one who has the right and the power to actually do it. And so the book of Revelation is, in a very real sense, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And and the revealing of Christ is largely, in effect, him ripping 
the authority of the earth out of Satan's hands. Okay? And so we saw uh, seven seals as he's breaking the seals to open the scroll and take back the earth. And then that brought seven trumpets. We read the first six last week. Tonight we'll get into the seventh. And so chapter 10, verse 1, John says, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud. And a rainbow was on his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea, and his left foot on the land, and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. So John sees an angel coming down, and he tries to give us a description, but frankly, it doesn't do us really any good, because I've never seen anybody wearing a cloud, and I've never seen anybody with a rainbow on their head, and I've never seen anybody whose face looked like the sun, and I've never seen anybody whose legs looked like they were on fire. Um... So I can appreciate that John was trying to help us out here, but there's a point at which I'm like, I think I'll, you know, some people are more visual learners. I think when I see that angel, I'll be like, that's what legs on fire looks like. Got it. Okay. Yeah, that's probably what I would have written down, but boy, I didn't really appreciate it until right now. Like, those legs are on fire. Um, so it's an angel coming. There's things, there are things that we have not seen. Right? When we read Revelation, there's, just, there's constantly this awareness of like, there's just a lot going on that we are not aware of. Right? And, and that's sometimes just a good reminder to be a little bit humbled. Like, there are powers out there that are in a different weight class than we are. There are things out there that are more glorious and more beautiful than we can imagine. There are things that are more hideous than we can imagine. And, and that's not to the focus of the book, because the focus of the book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. But it is just good sometimes to... Throw in a little dash of humility and remind ourselves what we don't know and what we can't see. So John sees the angel coming down, and he cries out. And in verse 3, it says, When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. So there's intelligent thunder in heaven. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered, and do not write them. So John sees the angel coming down out of heaven. Uh, He hears seven thunders. And he's about to write down what they said, because there's an, evidently it's a message of some sort that he hears, and John hears a voice say, don't write it down. It is it's not to be written down for the church. And so, who knows what they said? Nobody. You can buy books on what they said, but it would be a waste of your, of your money and of your time to read it, because God said uh, what they said is going to be sealed up, and so, oh, we have no idea. I have, I, you know, I, I, haven't, I haven't the slightest clue. I know that if it was critical for us to understand the revelation of Jesus Christ, God would have included it. So it will be beneficial and it will be valuable in its context when we hear it someday. But until then, I really don't know. So we move on. In verse 5, The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer, but in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished, as he declared to his servants the prophets. So, the angel is standing on the sea and the land, and there's, there's an idea there that basically this angel has power over pretty much any spot on earth that he wants. It doesn't matter if it's on the water or on the land, this angel can, can carry some weight there. And he swears that there should be delay no longer. And that when the seventh trumpet sounds, we're going to get there uh, in chapter 11, and the mystery of God will be finished. Now, some people argue about what exactly, you know, there's a couple of things that Scripture refers to as a mystery or the mystery of God. 
So it could be, you know, the final revealing of the Antichrist uh, and understanding who he is. It could be the end of the second coming when, when he touches down on the Mount of Olives. It could be a couple different things. What specifically is the mystery? We're not really sure, but the idea is that when the seventh trumpet goes, at that point, we are really kicking into high gear. Okay? At, the, at that point, the end is coming fast. And we've, you know, we read last week, there's a lot of rather brutal stuff already at this point. But this angel says, no, when the seventh trumpet goes, that's when things are really going to step into high gear. And so verse 8, John is writing and he says, Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter, and he said to me, You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, uh, you may recognize this as being very similar and if you don't, that's totally fine, uh, to something that happened to the prophet Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel chapter 3, we read something very similar. The Lord is speaking to Ezekiel, and it says in verse 1, Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find, eat this scroll, and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat that scroll. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate, and it was in my mouth like honey in sweetness. And he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. And he goes on from there. But in Ezekiel, the idea is that basically the Lord is giving Ezekiel his words to eat. The word of God to be eaten and digested by Ezekiel. And in John's case, I think it's a similar principle um, that John has more words from the Lord to deliver. In essence, and he says it was in my mouth, it was sweet as honey, but it was bitter in my stomach. And I think that's really appropriate if we understand what it is to have the word of God. Because there's an incredible blessing and an incredible privilege and there's a sweetness and a fellowship and like, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm in the word of God. And especially if you ever have the opportunity to speak into someone's life in, in, a, in a moment when you realize the Lord actually gave me that, that word of wisdom or he, or he brought that scripture to mind and he really actually spoke his words into my mouth in a way that then blessed someone else. That's a really wonderful feeling. It's a great thing. But in the same time, there's also a heaviness that comes with that. Because when there's the ability to speak truth, there's the responsibility to speak truth. And John, right here, you know, he's, he's, oh, he's got, the angel says, or the voice says, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. John, you know, if you're John, you've already written all this stuff down. You've got to be thinking, like, surely the book is almost over. And we're not even at the, at the halfway mark. So John's like, hey, I'm, I'm going to get more direct revelation from the Lord about what to write. The Holy Spirit is going to put words in my mouth and in my pen, and I'm going to write these things down, and they will bless the church until Jesus Christ comes back. That'd be a huge blessing, right? I've never written a passage of the Bible, but I bet it was pretty epic in its own right. But with that, there's an awareness of, oh, but that means I have to write about more judgment. And I have to, now I'm responsible, to, I'm making people aware of this. And that means there's an action that has to follow. And if people hear this and then don't respond to it, that means they are bringing judgment upon themselves. And there's a weightiness to it. And that's what we live with when we have the Word of God. There's a, there's a wonderful blessing with it, but there's a weightiness. What do you do with it? 
And if you try and just say, oh, no, I just want, I just want you know, sweet fellowship with the Lord, uh, that's not really what you get. Because if you just keep it in your mouth, but you never swallow it, who does you, does you no good? And the Word of God is not meant to just be in our mouth. It's meant to be swallowed and, and absorbed. And it is supposed to be a blessing to us and bring us you know, a, a great taste in our mouths, if you will. But it's also meant to actually fuel us and to equip us and to give us the strength and the energy and the stamina that we need. And that sometimes is not always pleasant. You know, sometimes food is dessert and sometimes food is just fuel. And the Word of God is both, but there's an awareness. There's, there's, okay, this is, I've been given the Word of God, now I have a responsibility. What am I going to do about it? Okay, and that's, you know, even Revelation, we're told the Lord promises a blessing to anybody who reads the book. So, you guys are going to receive a blessing from God for being here and listening to the book tonight. But guess what? You've got to do, do something with that. You've got to decide what you're going to do about it. So, John basically now realizes there's more to prophesy. And he goes on in chapter 11. The first like six verses are, uh, they're great, but there's like, we're going to read them all. I was trying to decide how to break it down because if I tried to like, make each point as I went along, there'd be no coherency to it. So we're going to read verses 1 through 6, and then we'll go back and just kind of crawl through it. So, chapter 11, verse 1. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And an angel, the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for forty-two months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have the power to shut heavens so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Do we really need to clarify that at all? I mean, that's like just like, you know, it's pretty cut and dry. Um, but, okay, so there's, there's several things that he's referencing here from the Old Testament. So we want to go back and make sure we're just aware of what, what's actually being said here, okay? So he's given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel says, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar and those who worship there, but leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. So, basically, John is told, okay, look, you're going to measure what we know as the Temple Mount. You're going to measure the temple that's there, but don't measure the court of the Temple Mount, because that's been given over to the Gentiles. Now, if you know uh, much about sort of the current state of Israel, the nation of Israel, there is no temple on the Temple Mount. There is a mosque, uh, the Muslims view the Temple Mount as the third holiest site in Islam because they think that's where Muhammad went to heaven from. Um, but there's not a temple there. And that little 35-acre plot of ground is, is just about the most controversial piece of earth on this planet because who gets to go there? And, and you have uh, you know, the Jewish people view it as the holiest site in the world. The Muslim people view it as the holiest site in the world. And Christians don't believe in necessarily a holy site because we believe that the Holy Spirit is dwelling inside of us and therefore anywhere you have a Christian you have a holy site but we do recognize the historical value of it in the, in the you know the history that's there and so we do see it as a 
as a worthwhile memorial to preserve. Okay, but John here, the angel tells him, you're going to measure it off for the temple, but you're not going to measure off the outer court. So what is he talking about here? What is he saying? Well, go over, if you would, to Daniel chapter 9. And in Daniel chapter 9, we have what's called the 70-week prophecy, um, where the Lord explains to Daniel in a vision, he says in chapter 9, verse 24, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago, where in the Jewish culture, a week is a cluster of seven. In, in English, a week specifically means seven 24-hour days. In Jewish culture, a week means a group of seven. So initially, as this prophecy is given, it could have meant 77-day periods. It could have meant 77-year periods. And as we've watched history fulfill part of the prophecy, we realize that it means 77-year periods. So he says there's going to be 70 weeks. He says there's going to be, from the, in verse 25, he talks about from the command to rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah comes, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. How many is that? 69 weeks, or 69 groups of seven. 69 times seven is 483. And you can map out the history of it. 483 years to the day from when the command went out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to what we know as Palm Sunday. Okay, it, it, it's one of the most incredible literal prophecies in all of Scripture. That's 69 of the 70 weeks. And he says, so he talks about there'll be seven weeks and 62 weeks. In verse 26, it says, After the 62 weeks, the Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. What are we talking about? Jesus Christ was cut off, but not for himself. He was not killed for his sins. He was killed for our sins. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood, until the end of the war desolations are determined. So there's a prince who will come. We'll get to that next week. That's what we know as the Antichrist. The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So, we understand a couple things, and we'll, we'll probably be back in this passage again next week. So if you're, like, if, if you're having a hard time keeping up, that's totally fine. Um, but there's a prince who will come, that's the Antichrist, and his people destroy the city and the sanctuary. Who are his people? Well, the Roman army in 70 AD destroyed the city of Jerusalem and the temple that was in Jerusalem. And so there's a, uh, when the Antichrist comes, his kingdom will be in some form of a revived Roman Empire. We do not know exactly what that looks like. We'll talk about next week that there's a difference between speculation and what we know. And there's a lot of fun speculation about what that looks like, but it is speculation. But they'll destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it will be with a flood. Some translations, uh, that could be translated diaspora which is what we know as the Jewish diaspora. After the destruction of Jerusalem, the Jewish people spread all over the world and really did not start to come back until the last century, last century and a half maybe. But verse 27, this is important. And then he, that's the prince who is to come, that's the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall be the one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So, the Antichrist, he will make a covenant with many for one week. If we understand 
That prophecy, as it's speaking, that means one seven-year period. So the Antichrist will rise to power and he'll make a seven-year treaty with many. Most people say that means basically world peace, a worldwide treaty. There might be a couple outliers, but he's going to make a covenant with many for one week, for one seven-year period. And in the middle of that week, at the three-and-a-half-year mark, he's going to break his own covenant. And so this is where it is important to understand the difference between what we know for sure and what we speculate, okay? But there's very good grounds to consider, and, it, and there's a little bit of speculation here, but it is, I think, very reasonable and consistent with Scripture that one of the hallmarks of what the Antichrist will do, if you're going to look at a leader who's going to rise and bring, quote-unquote, world peace, or at least claim to, one of the things that he will have to do is reconcile religious differences. Because our world is not just politically divided, it's religiously divided. And particularly, if you look at who, what are the major, what people call the Abrahamic faiths, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, we can respect that there are convictions, but we don't get along super well, right? And so understand, one of the things that the Antichrist will do is bring religious peace. And many people speculate that one of the ways that he might be able to do that is if he can create some sort of plan whereby the Jews get a temple on the Temple Mount and the Muslims get the Dome of the Rock on the Temple Mount. And if that's what he does, then what would you have? You would have a situation where you could measure the temple of God, like it says in verse 1, and the altar and those who worship there, but leave out the court which is outside the temple and don't measure it for it's been given to the Gentiles. You could have a situation in which there is a temple on the Temple Mount, but the Temple Mount itself is still considered to the Jewish people to be defiled because it would have an Islamic population walking over it on a regular basis. And so it's very feasible that you could see an Antichrist come to power at the beginning of the Great Tribulation and he'll make a seven-year treaty, part of which will involve bringing together uh, an Islamic and Jewish divide over who gets the Temple Mount. And incidentally, bear in mind also, you know, we talked a few weeks ago in Ezekiel 38 about the Lord's judgment on many of these radical Islamic nations. If the prophecy of Ezekiel 38 is fulfilled and then the rapture takes place, and then the Antichrist comes to power, what will have happened? Radical Islam worldwide will be pretty much obliterated. True Christianity will be gone, because we'll all be out of here. And what you'll be left with is basically liberal theological Islam, uh, liberal sham Christianity, and Judaism, which today on the whole is very theologically liberal. And frankly, if you took those three groups... And they're all pretty peace and love anyways. And it wouldn't be that big of a stretch to say, you know what? It's all basically the same God, same thing. We just like our architecture differently. You know, you get the mosque, we get the temple. We'll all be happy. And the Antichrist is going to negotiate that. He's going to broker that deal. And then he says, they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And then verse 3, he switches gears. He says, and I will give power to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy 1,260 days. That's uh, in the Jewish calendar, which is 360 days. That's three and a half years or 42 months. So the Antichrist will get the temple situated on the Temple Mount. There's going to be a seven-year peace treaty. And for three and a half years, the Gentiles, and so we say presumably or potentially a lot of Islamic tourism to the Dome of the Rock, and then probably also just general tourism, would be defiling the Temple Mount. And during that time, he says, I'm going to give power to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy during that entire time. 
And then he says, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Sure. That there is a reference to the book of Zechariah, where Zechariah has a vision of two olive trees and a lampstand. And I like how one pastor said, he said, honestly, I understand the application of the vision, but I don't have the slightest clue what the vision is about. Um, Because the principle that the Lord lays out in the vision is that Zechariah sees a lampstand burning, and he sees two olive trees, and there's pipes running from the olive tree straight into the lampstand. And so what he's seeing is oil comes straight from the tree to the lamp. And there's no refinery, there's, there's no process of making oil, and the Lord tells Zechariah, here's what you need to know, not by might and not by power, but by my spirit. And the lesson of the vision is that if you want to succeed in life, you need to go straight to the source. You need to be filled with the Spirit of God. You don't need a bunch of, you know, man's ideas filtering God. You don't need a priest to read the Word of God for you and tell you what it means. You need to just get filled with the Holy Spirit. And you need to let the Word of God speak to you directly. And that's the point of the vision. But when Zechariah has this vision, he's talking to an angel and asking, and trying to figure out what's going on. And so chapter 4, verse 11 Zechariah is speaking in the book of Zechariah, and he says, Then I answered and said to him, What are these two olive trees at the right of the lampstand and at its left? And I further answered and said to him, What are these two olive branches that drip into the receptacles of the two gold pipes from which the golden oil drains? So what are these things? Like, I understand the lesson, but what is, you know, what am I actually seeing here? Then he, the angel, answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. I like this because... Zechariah sees a vision and he asks the angel, okay, what is this? And the angel says, you don't know what this is? And he's like, no, that's why I'm asking you. And he's like, it's the two anointed ones. Duh. And so we read it and we're like, oh, yeah. These two witnesses in Revelation 11, it's the two anointed ones, guys. It's the two olive trees, okay? I mean, any questions left? I don't think so. So who are these guys? Truthfully, we really don't know. And truthfully, it really doesn't matter. If the Lord wanted us to know, if that was critical for the revelation of Jesus Christ, he would have told us. Okay, a lot of people speculate that this is Moses and Elijah coming back to earth, and they, you know, they look at sort of the power that these two messengers have. That's totally possible. Some people think maybe it's Elijah and Enoch, because they're the two men in the Old Testament who didn't die, they just went straight to heaven. Maybe they come back to earth for one final go-around. That's totally possible. The two messengers before the Lord, that could be, you know, could be two angelic beings. We don't know. And so, and so, again, kind of like, what did the seven thunders say? You know what? What I know, and this, and this is where the, if, if your obsession is, what are the revelations of this book? Man, you can write some awesome literature. And there's some great reading material on who the two witnesses are and why, and why somebody else's opinion is dumb and why your opinion is great. But if the point of the book is the revelation of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ says... You know what? I'm going to have two witnesses. I'm going to give them power, and they're going to prophesy for 1,260 days. And we say, oh, that makes sense. And he says, if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And then he says, verse 6, that they have the power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. So there is very much an idea of the Old Testament prophet in the way that these guys deliver their message, okay? Um, and they are prophesying, they're speaking the truth, and presumably they're doing this right on the Temple Mount. So think about this. 
The Antichrist rises to power. He brokers this international religious political thing where everybody's happy, right? Everybody's happy except for this slightly annoying problem on the Temple Mount, and that is that you have all the nice, happy Jewish people and all the nice, happy Islamic people because we're all happy now, right? Because this is world peace. We're all happy. But gosh dang it, there's these two annoying dudes who are standing up there, and they will not stop telling people that Jesus Christ is real. And if you try and, you know, and arrest them, and I mean, Israel's got generally a pretty tight security system, right? Israel understands security and metal detectors and, and you know, stun guns and all those things like really well, better than most of us. But if you try and kill them, fire comes out of their mouth. And that's like, we don't have a good solution to that yet, right? Like Kevlar does not stop it. There's just not a lot you can do at that point. And so these men will prophesy for three and a half years here. And think about that. You know, we talked about this last week. It just comes up over and over and over again in Revelation. The patience of the Lord is salvation. All of these liberal Muslims and all these tourists who just think it's an interesting feature of architecture and all these liberal Jewish people are going to have a chance to walk past two people who will not shut up about Jesus Christ. And don't you think it will probably get a little bit of attention when you realize that you can't kill them and you can't stop them? Right? And that, oh, by the way, they actually just made it stop raining. And oh, by the way, they called plagues down on the earth. And oh, by the way, they're warning us. And there's some kind of like supernatural power behind these guys. Maybe we should listen. And we, you know, we talked about last week, by the end of the Great Tribulation, there will only be two kinds of people in the world. There will be people who say, I will follow Jesus Christ no matter what. And there will be people who say, I will not follow Jesus Christ no matter what. And the Lord is going to polarize the earth. But he's going to make sure that everyone has the opportunity and the chance to know exactly where they stand. And so, verse 7, it says, When they finish their testimony, they're, they're given a set time to prophesy, and when they wrap it up, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. We'll read about that guy next week. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So they are in the city of Jerusalem. He says, spiritually, at this point, Jerusalem will be like Sodom. Verse 9, Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So it's, it's really, it's super fascinating, because... These men are untouchable until they're done with their prophecy. And then the Antichrist will kill them, the beast who comes up out of the earth. And they, their corpses lie on the street for three and a half days. And what's interesting is the whole world sees it. Now, think about that. Up until about 50, maybe 60 years ago, that wasn't possible. Up until about 15 years ago, that wasn't practical, Right? But right now, if I wanted, I could see what's going on in Jerusalem right now, right? I thought about just for kicks uh, calling Aaron Moon in Thailand like live from stage just to say hi and just make the point that we can communicate in real time halfway around the world uh, like as it's happening, right? So we live in a world, you know, and again, this is where we want to interpret Scripture literally. 200 years ago, if you were reading Revelation, you'd be like, well... Maybe every country will have a representative in the city at the time that they die. 
we look at it right now, and we say, you know what I bet that means? I bet that means the whole world gets to watch it. Because we live in a world now where the whole world could watch it. So don't be afraid for what it's worth. Don't be afraid to trust the word of God. To say what it means and means what it says. There's, there's something just super fun. I love, there's, there's an old book called The Coming Prince by a guy named Robert Anderson. It's written in the early 1900s, like pre-World War I. And he's writing and he says, and he's like, I know this sounds crazy, but when you read the prophecies, it sounds an awful lot like there's a real Israel. So I know it's ridiculous, but I bet somehow or other there's going to be a, a nation of Israel again someday. And you read it sitting back now and you're like, man, that guy was on top of his game. But if you were reading it back then, you'd be like, that guy's just a little bit out in left field, right? So I could be a little bit out in left field, but I believe that the Word of God is pretty able to speak for itself. And so, you know, we live in a world where more and more the prophecies in here could be very literal. So those, verse 10, who dwell on the earth, rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another. Their death becomes an international holiday. Because the world, at this, you know, he said, the world is polarizing. The world is so rebellious in its hatred of Christ at this point that the world says, the two prophets are dead. Let's party. At this point, you mean you, I mean, Christmas will be done as a holiday if the Christians are gone and, and if we're all celebrating world peace, you know, religious holidays in general will be gone. So, we need a new holiday. Well, you know, how about Death of the Prophet Day? And we'll all send gifts and, you know, you can wrap them and you can get your, you know, your dead prophet wrapping paper and, and whatever and we'll have this like big party because the world is going to be obsessed with, hey, you know what, we, are, we succeeded in our rebellion against the Lord. But verse 11 says, now, after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. I see that's a reasonable, like, appropriate response. When somebody comes back to life after three and a half days, being wigged out is probably the right thing to do. But, in the, but remember, this is while the whole world is watching. Imagine, right, I mean, we, you know, think about the power of their testimony for three and a half years. And the whole world getting to hear the message because, you know, they're going to be a news phenomenon. And everybody's going to, at some point in time, tune in and hear the gospel. And then they'll die. And for three and a half days, be like, ha, see, we knew everything they said. It was just some sort of weird, you know, they had some weird thing going on. The fire was some sort of magic trick and, and whatever else. And you know what? It's not, we knew that Jesus was just, it was just a, a facade. And then you're on live TV watching, you know, the news reporters are talking, and all of a sudden, like, behind the camera, they stand back up, right? And the news reporter's going to have to improvise something on the spot, and, and like, it would be rather awkward for the world. Because when you try to defy Jesus Christ, it gets rather awkward. Because you can't. And you can, I mean, you can in the sense that you can always fight him, but you can't ever win. And so... Verse 12, they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid, and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe was passed. Behold, the third woe was coming quickly. So in essence, you could say that everything we've read up to this point tonight is still a continuation of the sixth trumpet. Because at the end of the fourth trumpet, the angel says there's three more significant judgments coming. There's... The fifth, sixth, and now we're getting ready for the seventh. 
But just think about these two witnesses, whoever they are, right? They prophesy. They can't be killed. They can't be killed. They can't be killed until the second that they are killed. And then three and a half days later, in the midst of the celebration that they're finally dead, they come back to life. And then as the world is freaking out about that, you hear a voice say, come on up. And they go on up. That's going to be rather thought-provoking for anybody who's being intellectually honest. Anybody who's, you know, and so understand. Sometimes we always worry about, like, what about the person who didn't get a chance or the person who didn't hear the gospel? Everyone has heard the gospel. Everyone is given enough of an awareness of their own sin and enough of an ability to know that there is a God out there that everyone has an ability to be aware of their need for God. But specifically, at the end of time, as it's all coming together and it's all coming to a close, the Lord is going to just clarify the message further and further and further. So there's no doubt in anyone's mind what we mean when we say Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. So, now he says the third woe is coming quickly. Verse 15, then the seventh angel sounded. So this is the seventh trumpet of the trumpet judgment. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. In the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. And then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in this temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquake, and great hail. Now, the seventh angel sounds, and there's loud voices saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And if you're just reading kind of quickly, you're like, that didn't sound that impressive of a judgment. You know, like, I mean, go back. Last week, you know, the second trumpet, a third of all living creatures in the sea died. Okay. The fourth trumpet, a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars. Seventh trumpet, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. You're kind of like, I don't get it. Well, think about this. Go back in, in either in your mind or in your Bible, either way. Um, I didn't put a bookmark there, so it'll take me a second. Matthew chapter 4. Jesus in the desert being tempted by Satan. And in Matthew chapter 4, verse 8, it says, Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So Jesus is being tempted by Satan. And Satan takes him up and shows him all the kingdoms of the earth and says, Look, these are all mine. I'll let you have them all. All you've got to do is give glory to me. He says, I'm willing to let all the glory on earth direct to you as long as you just direct a little bit to me. And Jesus says, no. You should worship the Lord your God and him only. And what's interesting is the Lord does not argue the point with Satan, whether or not Satan has the right to give, to kind of deal out the glory of the earth. Because when Adam sinned in the garden, Satan, in essence, received ownership of the earth. He received the right to 
to have free reign on the earth to a point. He doesn't have total dominion, but he received the right to be able to exercise wickedness on the earth. Okay? And so this is where, in Revelation, we need to understand, Revelation is Jesus taking it back. Okay? When, when the Lamb steps forward to take the scroll, what he's in essence doing is he's opening up the title deed to the earth and saying, yeah, ownership is transferred back to Christ. And so what's happening here when the seventh trumpet goes is basically Jesus is saying, okay, no, it's mine. The world is mine now. And, and the reason that's so significant is, think about, I was trying to dig for a good metaphor, and I think the one I came up with, I don't even know if I came up with it, the one I stole or came up with or whatever. Have you ever seen a parent who's being like super chill with a kid who's being super losing it? Like the kid is going ballistic and the parent is just like super stoic, right? And you just kind of want to be like, hey, nice job there, dad or mom. And the kid has something in their hand, right, that they are not willing to let go of. And the parent is uh, not freaking out, but that needs to go back on the shelf, right? And sometimes you'll see the parent gently but firmly, you know, take the wrist, pry up in the fingers, remove the toy, and put it back. And the kid doesn't really appreciate it very much. The kid tends to be freaking out at that point, right? But the parent understands the context, and the parent says, like, nope, that's mine. Or, nope, that's not yours. Right? Well, in essence, that's what you have right here. In essence, Satan is the kid holding on to the title of the earth, saying, no, it's mine. And God says, no, it's not. And takes the wrist, opens the fingers, takes the title out. And the reason that's significant is two things. One, understand the power of Christ. But also then understand what you have right here is you're going to have Satan pitch a tantrum. Okay? That's, why, that's, that's part of why the seventh trumpet is going to be so significant. Because in this moment, you know, a, a two-year-old, a three-year-old pitches a fit. It's annoying, right? I'm just an uncle and a brother and whatever else. But it's pretty annoying, right? But it's not the end of the world. Uh, you know, I think it was Joe Foch the pastor in Philadelphia, so the reason God gives us kids in small packages is so they don't kill us, right? It's, it's kind of funny when they're like two and they're this tall, right? If they were 6'3 and 280 pounds, it wouldn't be very funny when they pitch a tantrum, right? Well, what happens when Satan loses his toy, right? And then Satan pitches a tantrum, and we'll see. And so really, I, it's a bad place to stop, but I couldn't stop. I couldn't start chapter 12 without going 12, 13, 14, so I decided to stop. But... What's significant about the seventh trumpet is that the Lord says, okay, I am stepping. I am, I am taking the title back. And in the midst of a world that's going to feel like it's losing control, and like, is God really in control? It's in that moment when the Lord says, the Lord says no, I am in control. And it says, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of the Lord and of his Christ. Jesus didn't argue with Satan when he was tempted in his earthly ministry. He just waited. Because he knew that actually, Satan, I don't have to ask your permission to have the kingdoms of the earth. I can take them. And I'm going to take them at the right time. And so that's why in verse 17, the elders say, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. God's going to take his power and do what is appropriate for a powerful ruler to do, and that is reign. Right? God has power. You know, we, we always say, 
absolute power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's true if you involve a sinful human being. But when the God of the universe has absolute power, it does not corrupt him. It actually becomes the only appropriate response is for him to reign. And so the seventh trumpet is a really interesting one in the sense that it will unleash terror on earth. But it's not unleashing terror on earth because the Lord is freaking out or the Lord is, is you know, it's slipping out of his control. It's actually because he is so in control of the situation. And he is so aware of what's going on. And so we just need to see that over and over as we're going through Revelation. We're at no point in this book does the Lord let go of the reins. At no point does he say, oh, didn't mean for that to happen, right? Whoops, <laughs> uh, hit the gas a little too hard. You know, I thought that turn was, you know, not as steep as it was. Uh, you know, and there's no point where, where that happens. The Lord is fully in control. And that's why the revelation of Jesus Christ should not be a book that terrifies us. It's a book that's meant to comfort us because we read it and we say, wow, the Lord is completely in control, right? So Lord, we thank you for your word and we pray that you would help us to be reminded of who you are and of your character and of the, the amazing assurance that we have to be able to rest in you. I think about all of Paul's letters where he said, grace and peace. And we, in the midst of a world that are, is going crazy, can have that same grace and peace through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so I pray that you would help us all to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that you would fill us up with your Holy Spirit, that you would empower us, and that you would fill us with a, a burden to reach the lost, to disciple the young, and to see you move in power. And Lord, at the end of the revelation, it says that the Spirit and the bride say, come. And so we do pray that you would hurry back. But while we wait, we pray that you would make us effective in what you've called us to. So have your way with us and go before us. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our King, that we pray. Amen.